0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But now, Matthew chapter 28. You know, fear is a very interesting thing, isn't it? Fear is a very interesting and a very unique thing because in actuality, there's so much to fear. And I'm sure right away when I say that you start to think of the things that scare you. You start to think of the things that you fear. And the truth is, is so many of us are afraid of so many things, even though we wear t-shirts that say no fear. We really are scared about a lot of stuff. As a matter of fact, Ann Landers says that of the 10,000 letters she gets each month, one problem dominates. Can you guess what it is? Fear. She says this. People are afraid of losing their health, their wealth, and their loved ones, people are afraid of life itself. Life itself. You know, no wonder, because there's a lot to be afraid of, right? We live in very frightening and very perilous times. Anyone ever turn on the news and you just get depressed? Because what is it? Everything, it's like, oh, there's a shooting here, there's an earthquake here, there's a volcano here, even the weatherman, it's going to be mostly cloudy. It's never partly sunny, it's always mostly cloudy. You know, there's a lot of depressing stuff on the news today. As a matter of fact, Chip Luska was flying back from his trip to Israel and he put on his Twitter as he was stuck in Rome, in Rome due to volcano delay. Okay, you know you're living in bad times when it's not a snow delay any longer, it's a volcano delay, all right? You know, there's a lot to be afraid of. We're afraid about our futures, about our money, our retirement. We're afraid about where our kids are going to go to college. We're afraid about what's going to happen, what job we're going to have, where we're going to live, our health. Our possessions, our families. We're concerned about our welfare, our livelihood, even our very lives. Toby Maguire, you might know him better as Spider-Man, interviewed recently, said this. Sometimes I get panicky. I ask myself, is this what life is? You know, the pursuit of material success? Or is it a spiritual journey? I'm learning a lot about responsibility and immorality These are two big things. The concept that this is not a dress rehearsal. You know, no wonder people get panicky. No wonder people get afraid because there's a lot to be afraid of. Times are dangerous. And from a very young age, we're taught to be afraid of certain things. Who here can remember their fear that they had when they were a little kid? What you were most scared of when you were a little kid? That you'd walk up the stairs and you'd look in the hallways and you'd look in the closets and what crippled you with fear when you were a child. Now, do you still fear that at this age? I hope not. You know, for me, when I was a little kid, I was never scared of like the boogeyman or, or fictional things. What I was always scared of, and I'm serious, was murderers. And I was so sure that when I would walk into my house, there would be a murderer waiting for me. I had no idea where I got this crazy concoction and idea in my head, but I was sure that under my bed one time he was going to be there and he was going to jump out, ha, gotcha, can't run away now. I always had this weird fear uh, that that was going to happen to me. You know, I read an article that had the top fears for children today, and they're this, number one, top fear for children, losing a parent. Number two, going blind. Number three, academic retainment. Number four, crying in class. Number five, parental fights. Number six, being caught in theft. Seven, suspected of lying. Eight, a poor report card. Nine, being sent to the principal. Ten, having an operation. Eleven, getting lost. Twelve, being ridiculed in class. Thirteen, moving to a new school. Fourteen, a scary dream. Fifteen, not making a 100 on a test. 16, being picked last on a team. That was always me, sadly. 17, losing in a game. 18, giving a class report. 19, going to the dentist. And 20, your parents having a new baby. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I can safely say no one in here is scared of those things. No, I don't think I would find any one of you crying on the side of the road because you were lost in your car. You know, I'm pretty sure people aren't, uh, aren't scared of those things anymore. You know, although we don't fear those things forever, we develop new fears. As we get older, those things pass and we begin to develop new fears. I also found a study about what the top 10 global fear list is today among adults. The number one fear among adults, public speaking. Number two, fear of death. See the irony here? People are more scared of speaking, talking to somebody, than they are dying. They would literally rather die in a plane crash than talk to the person next to them on the plane. That's, that's the ridiculousness of the situation. Number three, a fear of spiders. Four, a fear of darkness. We are like little kids, still scared of the dark. Number four, top fear. Number five, a fear of heights. Fear of people or social situations. Fear of flying. Fear of open spaces, fear of thunder and lightning. I want to know who's scared of thunder and lightning. See, my dogs are scared of thunder and lightning. I can't imagine people cowering. I'm sure there's someone in here. Don't worry, we still love you. But, you know, these are crazy. And last, a fear of confined spaces. But back to that first one. People would rather die than talk to people. They're more scared of starting a conversation, talking to people than they are of dying. I read another article, three out of every four individuals, 75%, suffer from speech anxiety. Well, tonight we're going to look at a direct commandment from Jesus Christ, go into the world and preach the gospel. Isn't it interesting that the very thing that we fear the most is the exact thing that Jesus commands us to do? The very thing that causes us to shake, that causes us to perspire, that causes us to freak out. Is the very thing that God demands of us. The very thing that God wants from us. You know, I think it's beautiful. That what we're scared of is what Christ wants us to do. Because you know what it shows me? It shows me that Christ is calling you to do what you're uncomfortable doing. He's calling you to do what you fear the most. He's saying, step out of your comfort zone. Step out of your shell. I know it's scary. I know you're freaked out. I know you don't know what to do. But trust in me. Do it. It's what we fear the most, and yet He calls us to do that very thing. And I think it goes perfectly with Psalm 23. It says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. And in this very commandment, in Matthew 28, it says, go into the world and preach the gospel, and I will be with you always. So why do we need not fear? Why do we have the, no need to be afraid? Well, because Jesus Christ is with us See, it would be another story if I were to say Go into the world and preach the gospel And you're on your own Good luck You know, then there's need to be afraid If it's just us, then there's need to fear Then there's need to tremble But the reason we need not fear Is because Jesus Christ is with us always The very thing we're scared of doing God is calling us to do And he's not suggesting, he's not subtly implying, hey, if you get get some time, would you mind going out into the world and preaching the gospel? No, he's commanding us, go into all the world and preach the gospel. See, we need not fear, once again, because he's with us. Because he has the power. Because it's not us, it's Christ. And yes, he knows that it's going to be scary, but he's with us. I want to ask you a question right now. I want you to be honest with yourselves. How often do you share your faith with others? How often do you share your faith with others? And if it's never, if it's very rarely, why? Why don't you share your faith? What keeps you from talking to that person at work? What keeps you from talking to that person on the bus, on the airplane? Your family members? Your friends? What scares you? Now I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. Who has shared their faith with Christ with someone else in the past week? Very good, very good. Okay, the past month. Okay, the past year. Okay. Now, if you didn't raise your hand, why? Why aren't you sharing your faith with Christ? Christianity Today recently conducted a poll concerning why more believers don't share their faith, and these were their findings When we asked whether churchgoers agree or disagree with some key statements, they were unanimous on two of them. One, I believe faith in Christ is the only way to salvation. I hope everyone in here believes that. Eighty-nine percent said that they agree or strongly agree with that statement. Number two, every Christian is responsible for evangelism. Eighty-seven percent of Christians believe that every Christian is responsible for evangelism. And now, while not unanimous, more than half of the respondents agreed or strongly agreed with the following, I believe the most important task for Christians is to lead non-Christians to faith in Christ. 68% said that they believe in that. However, we would look at that and we'd say we're doing pretty good. We'd look at that and we'd say, okay, we've got to be doing good. We've got to be bringing people to Christ in the droves. You know, there's so many people that agree that's what we should be doing. However, only 55% of Christians claim to have shared their faith in Christ with a non-Christian in the last year. Only 55%. So only half of the people that say that it is our job to evangelize are actually doing it. Only half of the people that claim that we're called to evangelize are actually taking that step. People are afraid of evangelism. I read another article that said only, or not only, actually 95% of Christians have never led another person to Jesus Christ. 95% of all Christians have never led another person to Jesus Christ. And what are some of the obstacles that we face? Why aren't people doing a good job at this? The top hurdle was this. A feeling that I'm not able to do evangelism as well as the professionals. Number two, being too timid. And number three, fearing how people will respond. You know what? The only thing that we have really in common with non-believers is that we're both terrified of evangelism. You know, non-believers don't want to see us coming at them with a Bible and we don't want to go talk to them. That's the only thing we really have in common is that we're both terrified of evangelism. They don't want to hear it and we don't want to tell them. So you put it together and everyone's happy. No. Once again, this is a commandment. Go into the world and preach the gospel. See, we're both uptight about evangelism. We might rationalize this away and say, well, that's for others to do. It's not for me. But the fact of the matter is, and we're going to see tonight, is that every single Christian is called to share the gospel with others. Every single one. There's no excuses. There's no clauses that take you out of that. Well, I tried it once. It didn't work out. So now I can just kind of sit in the background. No, everyone is called to evangelism. Let's read Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now once again, this is often and commonly referred to as the Great Commission. And this is not the Great Suggestion, or this is not a great idea. Hey, this is a really good idea, you should try this sometime. No, this is the Great Commission. And I want to point out, it doesn't tell the entire world to go to church. Instead, what it seems to be saying is telling the church to go to the whole world. See, a lot of times we expect people to just come to church and get saved. And we'll start a conversation with them. We'll say, well, are you going to church? And they say, no. And we get surprised by it. Oh, really? Well, no wonder your life's in shambles. And we kind of, you know, pull this kind of a card. Here's a question. Can we expect unbelieving people to just come to church? No. Can we expect them to come and want to get clean when they don't even know that they need to be cleaned? No, the Bible is telling us not to expect the world to come into these doors. You know, I would love it if all of Albuquerque would just come into these doors every week and it was a line around the corner. Everyone's just coming in to get saved. That'd be great if that's how it worked. If angels like appeared to people in the streets, boom, hey, go to Calvary, Albuquerque, you need Jesus. You know, that would freak some people out. That would get some people saved. But instead, the Bible tells us to go into the whole world. And it's not merely addressed to pastors, evangelists, and missionaries. This commission is addressed to all followers of Jesus Christ. So ask yourself this question. Am I a follower of Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, then your job is to go into the world and preach the gospel. So the big question is, is what are we doing about it? What are we doing to promote the great commission. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 you can jot it down you can turn there if you'd like. Romans 10:13 says this, the gospel in a nutshell. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Christianity in a nutshell. That if we call on the name of the Lord we will be saved. It continues, how then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they hear without someone preaching them? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. A commentator by the last name of Philip said this, How can they hear unless someone proclaims him? How can the world hear unless you tell them about what Jesus did in your life? How can the world know And believe unless you bring and administer the cure to sin, the love of Christ. And what Christ did in your life. How can they know unless you tell them? Verse 14 says, how can they hear? You know, many times we cop out from our calling to share. And I love this statement. Actually, I completely hate this statement. But I hear people say it all the time. They say this, well, I'll just live it and I'll leave the preaching to others. You know, I don't want to witness. I'd rather just let my life do it. Okay, you know what this is? This is Christian miming. This is what this is. This is Christian charades, is what people who do this are. Imagine if I were to come on the stage and say, hey, you know what, guys? I'm going to try a new tactic tonight. I'm not going to speak with words. I'm going to speak with actions. And you guys can interpret whatever you want. I'm going to do butterfly symbols and rainbows. And you guys can try to interpret whatever you want from it. And hopefully you get something from it. I would hope that everyone would get up and leave and walk out the doors because there's going to be no benefit from me doing that that's going to bring you any good. You know, a lot of people live their lives like that. They say, well, I don't want to actually talk to people about Christ. I'll just smile and carry my Bible and maybe someday they'll ask me why I carry my Bible and then it'll be perfect. You know, now one for one, I'm not downgrading the effectiveness of having a good witness. But it has to go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. One, you can't preach the gospel and then go live however you want to. But two, you can't just live a good life and expect people to come to Christ. You have to have words and actions. They come hand in hand. See, our lives can be a testimony, but it has to be paired with telling them about the love of Christ. First, First Corinthians one twenty one said that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. To save them that believe. Preaching. This word literally means the preached thing. Christ crucified. So therefore, the emphasis isn't on the preacher per se, but it's on the preaching. Now, this, what this means is that you don't have to be a preacher. See, you don't have to contort your voice and move your hands when you talk to people and try to use illustrations when you bring people to Christ. That's what, that's what it means. You don't have to speak strangely. What it means is that the love of Jesus that you have in your heart, the love of God that has cleansed you of all your unrighteousness, the good news that has changed you, your job is to proclaim it, to share it, to communicate it, and finally and most importantly, to verbalize it. That's your job. You don't have to have a PhD in theology to do that. You don't have to be Einstein, to be able to articulate what God has done in your life. And that's the beauty of a personal testimony. No one can discredit what has personally happened in your life. What God has done in your life. How God has changed you. And that is one of the most powerful things, one of the most powerful tools that we, have, we as Christians have. Is our personal testimony, telling people what Christ has done in our life. You know, and some people might say, well, I'm not called to do that. I just believe in the lifestyle of evangelism. Okay, great. You can play Christian charades all you want, and we'll go tell people about Jesus Christ. You know, there's no doing that in the Christian walk. And although it's vital to live what we preach, it's essential to verbalize it to others. And although it's true that God has gifted some in his church with the specific calling of evangelism, it's also true that he has called every Christian to evangelize you know, it's really sad, I see this as a very popular trend in America today, is that we're mistaken in the way that we think it, it is to reach the non-believer. And you see this a lot in these seeker-sensitive churches, where they think that if they do enough big flashy stuff that people will come to Christ, that through entertainment or through some program at the church, that that will attract them. You know, that's what I love about line-on-line, is that it's just the basics, Bible teaching every week, verse by verse. See, God has already chosen his avenue to bring salvation. And that's the word of God that is conveyed through the mouths of his disciples. That is his avenue. His avenue isn't some fancy light show. His avenue isn't an awesome song, although there's a lot of them. His avenue isn't a great movie, Christian movie, although there are some good ones. His avenue is people sharing the love of Christ. You know, there's so many so-called seeker-sensitive churches today where the Bible will not be preached in the pulpit. The Bible isn't found in the chairs, isn't found in the pews. The message might allude to it in passing, but there's more emphasis placed on the drama, the music, and the entertainment designed to appeal to the seeker. You know, it's all about what can make them feel good. And it really becomes more like a self-help class is what a lot of these churches become. You know, there's no trace of Scripture. It's all about having a better tomorrow. And you being a better you. And figuring out how to have the best life now is what a lot of these churches are about. You know, I call this the Joel Syndrome. And a lot of people who suffer from the Joel Syndrome often underestimate the raw power of the Gospel. They underestimate the raw power of what Jesus Christ did. Not making you a better you. No better tomorrow. Having a better today. By making Jesus Christ a part of your life. Giving your life to Him and letting Christ cover your sins. And that is the simplicity of the gospel. Nothing added, nothing subtracted. Jesus Christ dying for us. And we accepting the gift that He's given. And that's why the Bible says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You know, too many people today are ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Too many people today want to hide behind the gospel of Christ. Think about how beautiful it is for a second. Think about the majesty of it. It's a great mystery that for some unknown reason, God has chosen to make known his unsearchable riches through us. Why? You know, if I were God, I definitely would have chosen angels for that job would have been way more flashy, way more effective. Imagine right now when you're in the altar call section of the the service, that one person who's on the edge of their seat, and we go through, we're going to wait for you, come on down. Imagine if in that moment an angel, boom, went into the aisle right in front of them. Hey you, I know it, you're thinking about it, do it, do it right now. Everyone's looking at the angel, the smoke, the clouds. That guy's going to get up and go down to the front of the service. And if he doesn't, the angel's going to pick him up and take him down there. You know, that would have been a way more effective route for evangelism. And yet God chose us. Imperfect human beings who say stupid things, who do stupid things. And God chose us to share the love of Christ with the world. And the truth is, is that we all have a part to play. 1 Corinthians 3.6 says this, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who water have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. See, we all have a part to play, but what we need is people to play the part. Luke 10.2 says this, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest that he would bring forth laborers to the harvest. See, God is looking for and God is even commanding us to be laborers who are willing to plant and water spiritual seeds in the lives of those who don't yet know Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what if they just don't want to hear it? What if they... I, I just want to be sensitive to their feelings. You know what? Here's the truth. At some point people either in this life or the next must be confronted with the fact that they are sinners separated from a holy God and that there is salvation in no other name than in the name of Jesus Christ and that's the truth and if you don't confront them with it now they're going to be confronted with it ultimately before God Ultimately, they're going to have to respond to that truth. At some point, they must be confronted with that truth. And if you don't do it, who's going to? Your coworker that you sit across from, who you see every day. If you don't tell them, who's going to? Your family member, who every time you're at a family reunion is drunk or high or cursing or doing whatever. If you don't tell them about the love of Christ, who's going to? Your friend that you've had since you were a little kid, that you've really tried hard to do that Christian miming. And you're hoping that any day now they're going to ask you about Christ. If you don't tell them who's going to. See, we all have a part to play. We all have a part to play in the salvation process. And you might say, well, God doesn't need me. God can get the job done without me. You know what? You're right. And I'm glad you said that because there's so many people today that think that God needs them. And they think they're some kind of super Christian that, man, God sure is lucky. I've got, let's see, six people this week. If he didn't have me, I don't know what would happen. I don't think we'd ever get to go to heaven because, you know, people wouldn't hear without me. You know, they, they have this mentality that they're some kind of this this mega Christian. You know, the truth is, is that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. You know, if I were to go away, if my dad were to go away, if anyone were to go away, if if Billy Graham were to go away, anyone someone else would rise up in that place and share the gospel. God doesn't need us. And that's the beauty of it. He doesn't need us, but He wants us. See, it's true, He doesn't need us, but He wants you. He wants you to play a part in that process. And more importantly, He has called you to play a part in that process. It was a commandment that Jesus gave to us as believers to go and make disciples. And if we fail to do this, If you fail to respond to this call, then you're not only going to miss out on one of the greatest of all blessings in life, but it's also flagrant disobedience. Once again, not a suggestion, not an option, not yes, no, or maybe later. Go and make disciples. And it's worth noting that there's no person in the New Testament that came to faith apart from the agency of a human being. The 3,000 in Acts 2 were taught by Peter. The conversion of the Samaritans in Acts 8 were taught by Philip. The Ethiopian was reached by Philip. The Philippian jailer was reached by Paul and Silas. Even Cornelius, who was commanded by an angel to send for Simon Peter, who will speak to you these words by which you will be saved. Now keep in mind, God sent an angel to tell somebody to send him to a person. Once again, Why didn't God just send the angel right away and say, Hey, Cornelius, this is how you should get saved. And yet God sends an angel to Cornelius and says, Hey, Cornelius, go find Peter. He's going to tell you about what you need to know. See, God hasn't primarily chosen angels for that task. Even the conversion of Saul involved people. It no doubt was the dynamic witness of Stephen that prepared him for his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. And then on the Damascus Road... That Jesus told Paul to go and find Ananias who would tell him all that he needed to know. See, Jesus all throughout the New Testament used flawed humans with no apparent gifts, no talents in evangelism to bring others to him. See, we should water the seed with prayer. We should water it with prayer. But also remember this. God has his perfect time in everyone's life. You know, I've met some people that go and share their faith and they come back and they say, Nate, I did it, I tried it, I told, I said all the stuff that I was supposed to, and they didn't come to Christ. So that's it. I, it didn't work out for me. I guess God didn't call me to evangelism. And then they stop and they never do it again. You know, it might take time for that person to come to Christ. It might take time for that person to get watered by other people telling them about the love of Christ. You know, I, I've met people on the opposite side that play evangelism like it's some kind of a game show. They're, they're game show evangelists. And this is what they do. They say, do you want to accept Christ? You have to answer now. If you say no, you're going to go home with nothing. This is your chance. This is the million dollar question. Do you want Jesus Christ? Final answer, final answer. And that's what they do. And the person kind of gets pushed back and pushed back and finally they're saying, I don't know what I want. I just want to get away from you. And that's what it turns into. You know, it takes time. That person might not immediately, when you come there and say, hey, check this out. Bible, you need this now. They're not going to like start crying and accept Christ. Some might, but it might take time. It might take watering. and Who knows the person that you're going to talk to, where you're going to come along in that process. You might have the opportunity and the joy to reap the harvest. Or you might just be planting the seed. But either way, God calls us all to do it. We also need to understand this. That in our misdirected efforts to assist the work of the Holy Spirit, sometimes we might instead hinder Him. See, that's why the Bible calls us to speak the truth in love. In love. Letting them know it's simply one saved sinner telling another sinner how to get saved. In love, preaching the love of Christ. You know... When I was a little kid, my dad would sometimes invite me down into the basement to help him build things. And he had all his tools and he had his vice grips and all these things. And he would build tool chests and, and bookshelves. And every now and then he'd say, hey, Nate, come down to the basement and help me. Four years old, keep in mind. And I had just gotten my favorite toy. And it was a plastic tool set. And I would have a little belt and I'd have all the tools there. And I had my screwdriver, which at the time I called my da And I would look at my dad and he'd say, hey, Nate, come help me. and I'd be like, yeah, that's right. You need my help. And I'd pull out my plastic da and he'd be building a bookshelf and he'd be going away at it. And I'd pick up some screws and go put them in the corner of the, of the basement or pick up a board and go hide it and hit some stuff with my plastic da, all the while probably causing more havoc than I am actually help in the whole situation of building the bookshelf. And it would go on and at the end finally when my dad was able to keep me from hiding stuff and actually build whatever he was building I would then stand back and say yep that's right bookshelf four years old you know I, I thought I, I thought I had a gift in carpentry as a kid I guess but the truth is I probably hindered the process more than I helped my dad didn't need my help he didn't wake up in the morning and say oh my goodness unless my four-year-old son helps me with this project I'm never going to get it done See, he didn't need me, but he wanted me. He wanted the companionship. He wanted my help. Why? Because he loved me. See, sometimes in evangelism, we cause more havoc than we do help. We say something stupid. We do something wrong. And God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our help. He could get it done a lot better without us. But he wants us. He wants us. He wants us. He wants us. Why? Because he loves us, see, he wants you to be a part of the evangelism process. He wants you to pick up your spiritual kuda da and pitch in and help building his kingdom. Jesus said, "No man can come to me except through the Father which hath sent him to me." John six forty four, in verse ten, chapter ten, verse fifteen of Romans, it says. How beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel. Literally, this means in full bloom. That they're in full bloom. You know, many believers are like buds of a flower. They have so much potential. They have so much beauty hidden inside. And they just haven't bloomed yet. All that color, all that beauty is just waiting to blossom. You know, there's many believers today who complain of spiritual dryness. And this is a lackadaisical complacency that's setting in in their lives where the excitement, the passion is gone from when they first accepted Christ, where they're excited every time they come to church. And you know, these people are always speaking of their own problems, of their depression, the lack of purpose in their lives. You guys know these people? Now we love them, we pray for them, we lift them up, but every single time you talk to them, it's depressing. You guys know these people? Every time you talk to them, the Coolest thing in the entire world could have happened. God could have done the most incredible thing in your life, and at the end of that conversation, you're like super depressed. Oh my gosh, I didn't know everything was so bad, but now that I talked to this person, I know it is. You know that's that's what it's like talking to some of these people, and you're just so depressed at the end of this situation. They do this. This is what they do. You know, praise the Lord, but this and this and this is oh, this is so bad. You oh, know, you should have heard about this and all oh, last weekend. But praise Jesus, praise Jesus. And that's what they do. And really, they're just emoting all this stuff all the time. There's no joy in their lives. You know, they're saying the praise Jesus, but they don't really mean it. You know, the truth is, is that it's time for us to stop being obsessed with ourselves and to start caring about the plight of those who are on their way to a Christless eternity to face certain judgment. See, I don't care what's happening in my life. I don't care what's happening in our lives. There is nothing worse than than an eternity separated from Christ. And God, in speaking to His people in Isaiah 58, who complained of spiritual deadness and unanswered prayer, God responds in Isaiah 58, 6, and He says this, Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness? To undo the heavy burdens? To let the oppressed go free? You must draw out your soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul then your light shall rise in obscurity and your darkness will be as noonday and the Lord shall guide you continually and satisfy your soul in dryness and make strong your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fails. So if you want us to be spiritually satisfied, if you want to be a spiritually watered garden, what do you need to do? Look, it says you must draw out your soul. You must give out. you got to give out in order to receive back in. So if you're experiencing in your life right now, spiritual dryness and deadness, if you're depressed all the time, you know what the cure is? Go preach the gospel. And you say, Nate, that's the last thing I want to do. I need to get fed. I need to get get ministered to. I don't need to go minister to other people. You know what? If you go minister to others, you're going to get ministered to. Has anyone ever experienced this when you're going through a really hard time in your life, spiritual dryness, something bad has happened, and then that one person comes along that has it way worse than you, and you have an opportunity to minister to them? You can either say, oh, well, you know, I'm just not feeling up to it right now. I'm a little bit depressed. Or you can pour yourself out. And what happens is when you do that, God gives you such a passion. He gives you such a joy when you see that you were able to help someone else. That he fills you right back up. He fills you to the brim because you are pouring yourself out. See, sometimes the way that God ministers to us best is when we minister to others. See, the key is giving out. You know, I heard Greg Laurie once say, we either have a choice to evangelize or fossilize. That's the choice. Either you evangelize, you tell people about the love of Christ, or you're going to fossilize. You're going to dry up, you're going to shrivel up, and you're going to become the most spiritually dead and dry Christian in the world. You either evangelize or you fossilize. Give out what God has given you or hoard it, let it stagnate and miss out on being used by Him. Proverbs 11.25 says, The liberal soul shall be made full, and he that waters shall be watered himself. And Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that wins souls is wise. So once again, the question is, are you winning souls? What are you doing about the Great Commission? What is your stance on the Great Commission? Are you watering? Because if you're not, then I can promise you that you're probably very spiritually dry. You're dead. You're bitter. See, the reason I see most people backslide is because they aren't doing what God has called them to do. They're not taking part in the commandment. You know, I always tell, I've led a lot of mission trips, and there's one thing I always tell the students before we go on a mission trip. Expect God to do more in you than He's going to do in the people of wherever you're going to. And at first they kind of scoff at. They say, "Oh, whatever, you know, you don't know me. I've been on like a few mission trips. I'm like a super Christian. And these people, I'm going to build houses. I'm going to like give little kids candy. They're going to worship me at the end of this trip." And that's kind of how they feel. And then they go, and God rocks their world. He tears them apart. He brings such a knowledge to their mind. And they come back so broken, so humbled. And they have more of a passion for Christ than they've ever had in their entire life. Why? Because they went to give out. And in doing so, they were watered themselves. So, the question is, are you going to do what God has called you to do? If not, then you're probably going to be pretty dry. Going back to the poll I mentioned in the beginning... You might cite one or more of the reasons for not doing evangelism. A feeling that you're not able to do evangelism as well as the professionals. Maybe you're too timid or you fear how people will respond. Or you might add, well, I'm afraid that I won't know the answers to their questions. You know what? You might not. But guess what? You're not claiming to. You're not going out on Central with a sign that says, Magical Christian, I know everything. That's not what you're doing. Once again, you're simply going out there claiming to be a saved sinner telling others how they can be saved too. You know, it's kind of like when I broke my leg when I was skateboarding. When I broke my leg, I went to the hospital. And most of the time I was on morphine. I didn't even know my name. But, you know, when, when they were doing all these procedures, I had multiple surgeries. And, and if someone asked me if they broke their leg and they were sitting on the side of the road and they were saying, Nate, I broke my leg. Can you tell me about what tissues they worked on and what bones and, and the technical names for all the surgical procedures and how it all worked together and how you healed? I'd say, look, I have no idea how I healed, but I know this. It worked. I went there And my leg functions now. And if you don't want your leg looking really weird for the rest of your life, you should go there too. And that's all I could tell them. You know, same with Christianity. The answers will come in time. Learning, reading through theology books, whatever you want to do, that'll come in time. But you're simply going there saying, look, I know that I was messed up. And I know that Jesus Christ saved me from my sin. And that He can do the same for you. And I would suggest to you that for many, the missing ingredient isn't being too timid, isn't being afraid, isn't whatever the excuse is, I would suggest to you there's a missing ingredient as to why people don't share their faith. And without it, everything else is really beside the point. And here it is. Are you ready? Hold on to your seats. It's a big one. People really just don't care. I honestly think that's the reason. People really don't care. Many years ago, there was a guy named Charles Peace, and he was the worst of all criminals in England. And Charles Peace was brought to justice. He was a burglar, a forger, a double murderer, and he was condemned to death. And as he was being led to the scaffold, there was a chaplain that walked by his side. And as the chaplain walked by his side, he went through the motions as he coldly spoke of belief. And in the course of this often repeated speech, the minister mentioned the power of Jesus Christ to save from sin. And suddenly, Charles Peace spun around and shouted, Do you believe it? Do you believe it? He said, if I believed that, I would willingly crawl across England on broken glass to tell men that it's true. See, the problem with that minister is true of so many in the world today. Do we really believe what we're saying? Do we really believe in both heaven and hell? A guy named General Booth once said that he would like to send all his candidates for officership to hell for 24 hours as the chief part of their training. Why? Well, because we need to see the harsh reality of what awaits those who reject Jesus Christ. Think about it. If there was a house that was on fire, I'm sure you wouldn't hesitate to run in, risk your own life to save someone inside. You might even do it for a stranger. You'd definitely do it for a friend. No doubt you'd do it for a family member, especially a son, a daughter, a mother, a father. So turn it around. Have we shared the gospel with those we loved? Because they're facing a dilemma far worse than a burning house. They're facing a dilemma far worse than any earthly plight. They're facing an eternity separated from God. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story with Moses and the Israelites. And as we all know, the Israelites really got on Moses' nerves, right? They really stressed him out. And there was one occasion where... Moses was going to go to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And as he was preparing to do so, he told his buddy Aaron, Aaron, I need you to watch the Israelites for just a couple days, alright? Can you do that? Can you handle that, buddy? And Aaron's like, yeah, Moses, sure. I got it. Yeah, no no problem. Not a problem. He's like, seriously, bro, these guys are nuts. You don't even know. They just do crazy things. You really got to keep your eye on them. And Aaron's like, yeah, yeah, I got it, Moses. So Moses goes up to the mountain as he goes to the mountain... He's up there talking to God, and as he's talking to God, and as he's going through this whole ordeal, the Israelites start getting word, and they say, hey Aaron, Moses isn't coming back. He's abandoned us. God's abandoned us. We have no one. We don't know what we're gonna do. And Aaron says, oh no, I didn't realize that was gonna happen. So this is Aaron's idea. Once again, keep in mind, he just talked to Moses a couple days ago who said, just keep him in line for a couple days. I'll be back soon. So this is Aaron's plan. Alright, You guys give me all your jewelry, I'll melt it, make a giant golden calf, and we'll dance naked around it for a couple days. Surely that will make God happy with us. Really. So, this is Aaron's plan. So, he builds this calf. They all start having a huge naked dance party around this golden calf. And then God basically says, Hey, Moses, you've got a problem. You better get down there and deal with your people. Then there's a little banter. Moses says, well, God, they're really your people. And then God says, no, they're not. They're your people. Go down there and deal with them. (laughs) So Moses goes down and he breaks the Ten Commandments and he gets really mad at the children of Israel. And then again, he says, all right, I've really got to go back up there and deal with this thing. Otherwise, we're totally done for. So Moses goes back up to this mountain and he reaches the top and then he begins to speak to the Lord. And as he begins to speak to the Lord... There's a beautiful thing that happens. And the original meaning of the statement is so significant. What it is, it's a sigh, a groan, it's a cry. It's a sentence with no ending. Even in our New King James Version, the translators leave out the end of the sentence, trailing with a dash for punctuation. It's a sentence that was strangled in the middle with sobs of a man who was asking to be sent to hell. If only the people might be spared the righteous indignation of God. We read this. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, then it ends. There's nothing else. He stops. And at this point, the sentence stops. The translators end with a dash. And it must have been a long pause. Because Moses, no doubt, was considering the full implications of what he was about to say. And he continues, but if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. See, Moses had run the gamut with these crazy Israelites. They had done some stupid stuff. They had really tested his nerves. And yet, he was willing to stand in the gap for them. Lord, forgive them of their sin. But if not, blot me out of your book of life also. He was willing to stand in the gap. Ezekiel 22.30 says, And I sought for a man among them that should make me up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Alexander McLaren said this, You tell me the depth of a Christian's compassion and I will tell you the measure of his usefulness. See, we're only as good as our passion for the lost is. We're only as good... As our heart is hurting for those who aren't going to heaven. It's time for you, it's time for I to stand in the gap, to do our part. It says, Go into the world and make disciples of all men. You know, the world's a pretty big place. So maybe we can make this a little bit more bite sized. Go into all your neighborhood and preach the gospel. Go into all your workplace and preach the gospel. Go into all your family and preach the gospel. You know, the entire world was changed by 11 dudes. Fishermen, imagine if each one of us were to share the gospel as fervently and as passionately as those men, what would happen? Imagine if we had that kind of a burden for the lost, that kind of a passion for the lost. Man, the entire world would be turned upside down. All of Albuquerque would be saved. All of America would kneel before the Lord. If we but had that passion for the lost, we are called to stand in the gap. And don't think of it as some horrible, miserable experience. Charles Spurgeon said this, To be a soul winner is the happiest thing in the world. And with every soul that you bring to Jesus Christ, you seem to get a new heaven here upon earth. You know, I encourage you, be a soul winner. Let that be your number one job. Not an accountant, not a lawyer, not whatever it is that your profession is. Let your profession be a soul winner. What do you do? I bring people to Jesus Christ. Take the commission as a commandment. And if you do, I can promise you, you will have the most dynamic and passionate relationship with God than you could ever imagine. You know, The secret isn't in reading some book. The secret isn't in a seminar. The secret is in what God told us to do. Go and make disciples of all men. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word that is so true, that is so relevant, that demands us to go into the world, to go out of our comfort zone, to do what we're not comfortable doing, to preach the gospel. And if we do this, Lord, you can do incredible things in our lives. Lord, I pray that you will give us a burden, a passion for the lost, that you will help us to share the gospel daily, with no fear of what could happen or what people would say, but in trust, in faith, because we know who you are. We know the power that you have. Lord, I thank you. I pray that you will keep us this week. You'll guide us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.